love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 240. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. And welcome back to Flenny and the Fat. <laughs> yeah, I've got a little throat thing going on. Don't worry, it's not the COVID. <laughs> okay? Um, but just to be safe, uh, while you're listening to this podcast... Uh, wear a mask and stay six feet away from your radio. Yeah, or you're, you're listening on a radio. Well, people listen on their radio in a in a in a vehicle. <laughs> I pictured a boombox. Oh, yeah, boombox. <laughs> and I was like, no, probably not. No, not but a, no, not I guess you're box. right. No, hey, this was an exciting week for us. This week marked a a real milestone. Um, the box of oddities has been downloaded more than seven million times since its inception. What was it two and, a half, two and a half years ago? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, we're coming up on our anniversary. Yeah, but seven million downloads. Yeah, but we, we've only been married for five years. I that's mean, it's true. That's not, true. Not that big a deal. We're, but we're still married. <laughs> I'm still married to you. Yeah, I suppose that's a good point, especially <laughs> when I'm highlighting the downloads over the years we've been married. <laughs> Happy anniversary to you. Oh, thank you. What is it? Wood. I need to give you some wood. That's right. For our for our anniversary. We actually got a really nice gift from Rick and Steve, our friends from Maryland, and uh, they sent us a wood anniversary gift. Yeah, it's a log. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and it grows mushrooms. That was very kind of you guys. I'm a log lady. See how I just zipped right past the you giving me wood thing. Yeah, I see. And we'll never acknowledge yeah, it again. Didn't even lift your head. No. Nope. Not once. Um, so anyway, uh, I go first. And I'm going to tell you about the incredibly morbid journey of the most famous severed head in history. I love it. Uh, the severed head of Oliver Cromwell. Oh. So here's the story. In 1649, King Charles I of England was arrested, put on trial, and executed by a group of parliamentarians. They were called the Roundheads, which is a dumb name. Absolutely. Um, it was led by Oliver Cromwell. Charles II was exiled to uh, the European mainland, 
at the end of a long period of civil war and unrest in uh, in England. Charles I's execution and Cromwell's ascension to, quote, Lord Protector uh, led a decade of non-royal rule in England. So for 10 years in England, there was no king. Starting in 1649, Oliver Cromwell helped overthrow royalty, and then he just took over. Oh, okay. Pretty much was a king, but didn't uh, didn't take all the trappings, although he took all the property. He okay. lived in all the, the nice buildings right. and, you know, all those nice royal buildings that they have over there. Cromwell was born on April 25th in 1599, and he led the parliamentarian army in the English Civil War. Uh, once the army won, he oversaw the conversion of England into a republic and he, he abolished the monarchy and also the House of Lords after the execution of, of Charles I. Okay, well, that seems a little sketchy. Like, once you get into power, it doesn't mean that you just change the way our whole shit works, okay? Cromwell became Lord Protector, and his rule started in December of 1653, and it was very similar to a kingship, sure. but he... Uh, he turned down the offer to have been bestowed the uh, title of king. Okay. So is it really just a label kind of thing? I yeah. Mean, he, other, other than not having the name king. Right. He was pretty much acting as king. Yeah, he had unrestricted power. He lived in all the royal palaces. Yeah. Uh, he was formally offered in 1657 the title of king. But after, quote, agony of mind and conscience, he turned it down. Oh. Throughout... 1658, Cromwell suffered from an illness, and he also had some family tragedy, and he died in the on the afternoon of September 3rd, 1658. So he was in agony of a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah, okay. His death and his funeral were, were treated pretty much the same way that when a king died, you know, there was yeah. a lot of trappings and pomp and circumstance. Lots of big hats. Big hats and slow-moving brigades. The elaborate funeral uh, was delayed two times by what they call hesitant preparations. Um, they kept changing their mind on things, I oh. guess. But when it did... What uh, do fresh clothes mean? Does it mean <laughs> that they're just freshly washed or are they brand new clothes? Yeah. The, uh, the funeral procession made its way through London on the 23rd of November in 1658. The body had already been buried at Westminster Abbey for two weeks at this point because, well, you know, you rotting, rotting corpses yeah. <laughs> um, in those days, they did not, as we have mentioned many times uh, before, have refrigeration units in the 15th or 16th century. It's a shame, really. In fact, by the time that the funeral procession took place, he'd been dead for two months. Wow. Yeah. So he was dead for two months, but they kept him above ground, just kind of propped up there for about six weeks until they just couldn't take it anymore. Oh, that sounds unpleasant. Oliver Cromwell's uh, corpse lay pretty much undisturbed at Westminster until the restoration of the Stuart monarchy under Charles' son, King Charles II in 1660. So... King Charles II came back and kicked some ass mm -hmm. and took back the throne. At this point, though, Cromwell had already been dead for a while. Sure. But that wasn't enough of a punishment for, oh, no. for uh, King Charles II. It didn't make him feel good enough. So first he rounded up the 12 remaining surviving members of the group that overthrew the royalty and he had them uh, tried and executed. Okay. Probably not so much time trying them as just, you know, Letting executing them. Yeah. Yeah. They were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Oof. We've read about this. Uh, that's they, they drag them through the streets 
on an unwieldy sledge. Um, they're hanged by the neck. Then they're cut down while they're still kind of alive, uh, disemboweled while they're still alive. Mm. They're beheaded and dismembered, cut into four quarters. That's a rough way to go. So after all that was done, he said, yeah, but what about Oliver Cromwell? So he went and had Cromwell's body removed <sighs> from Westminster Abbey. Oh, no. While they were doing that, he, uh, he pieced out the parts of the guys that he, uh, drawn and he had drawn and quartered and just kind of handed them out and passed them around uh, to different provincial cities to put on display. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like uh, put them on stakes at the yeah. entryway to the city. That's like, exactly. Welcome to... Birminghamville Shire. Uh, This is uh, the head of that guy. Yeah. Don't fuck around. We would have settled for home of the world's largest ball of twine, but no. No. Home of like some guy's buttocks hanging from a bridge. We've got the lower left quarter. So Cromwell's body had been hidden in the wall of the middle aisle of Henry VIII Ladies' Chapel at Westminster. On the 28th of January, 1661, the body of Cromwell was taken to the Red Lion Inn in Holborn. And in Can my mind, go I'm... here, please? In my mind, I'm, I'm picturing the Red Roof Inn. <laughs> I'm sure and that's I'm thinking, a little different. What kind of travesty are they pouring down on this poor man's desecrated corpse? What an injustice. I want to go see these things. I'm feeling very untraveled right now. <laughs> and now nobody wants us to come to their country. That's I mean, I'm yeah. sure that's not new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for you and me <laughs> or just Americans in general. People yeah. from the yeah. States. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Cromwell's shrouded body was dragged on a sledge oh. through the streets of London to the gallows. Uh, he was hung in full public view. He's already decomposing. He's been dead for a while. Uh, they hung him until about four o'clock in the afternoon. I, I think that's tea time, isn't it? And they just, well, that's enough. So they, then they took him down. Cromwell's head was severed with eight blows, placed on a wooden spike on a 20-foot pole, and raised above Westminster Hall. Now, various conspiracy theories exist as to uh, what happened to the body. A lot of uh, experts say that um, the word was that Cromwell's daughter, Mary, had it rescued from a pit that they had just kind of tossed it into. Oh, I hope she didn't go and get it herself, because I bet that was... Fun? No, not fun. What's the word I'm looking for? bad. A sealed stone vault was claimed to contain the remains of uh, a headless Cromwell uh, at Newbury Priory. It's more likely that Cromwell's body was just thrown in a pit at Tyburn, where it remains to this day. That's Those are the theories about his body. His head remained on that spike over Westminster Hall until the late 1680s, except for a brief period of time when they took it down for roof repair in uh, 1681. They had to re-shingle the side of, uh, you know, one of the sides of, uh, of the chapel. And uh, so they took his head down briefly for that in 1681. Uh, circumstances in which Cromwell's head was removed from Westminster is pretty straightforward. Apparently there was a big storm toward the end of James II's reign, 1685 to 1689, and it broke the pole bearing the head, and it threw it to the ground. And one of the, one of the sentinels that was guarding the entrance, it just kind of went boom, boom, boom. Yeah. It fell next to him, and he just looked over and went, oh, I'll have that. And he took it and put it under his cloak and took it home and hid it in his chimney. Sir, rude. That's not your head. I mean, fair enough. Maybe you don't want it 
put back on a pole that you have to look at every day. <laughs> I get it. So people fairly quickly saw that the head was missing. Right. Hey, where's that head? And so they start looking for it, and they offered a considerable a considerable reward. Was it like an Easter egg hunt? <laughs> yeah. To get all the kitties out there, yeah, like right. looking in behind bushes and under plywood. Yep. But instead of gaily decorated eggs, it was the decomposed severed head of Oliver Cromwell. Mm. We should have a Cromwell hunt this spring. I very much look forward to it. We should have a Cromwell roll. I wish they did that on the White House lawn. So there were posters being put up all over London. Hey, there's a reward for Where's the re- head? for for Cromwell's head, and the guy who had it, uh, he didn't want to divulge that he had it because he thought it was a trick and that they would throw him in the yeah. Tower of London or something. Until 1710, he had it, and that's when the head went into the possession of a guy named Claudius Dupoy. He was a Swiss French collector of curiosities. And he had a private museum in London, and he displayed Cromwell's head in that museum uh, for a while. It attracted visitors from all over the place. It was quite um, a sought-after ticket to go see Oliver Cromwell's head at this this point in time. Uh, He was offered 60 guineas to sell it, which is about uh, 5,000 pounds in today's money. and uh, This feels very P.T. Barnum to me. Yeah, very, very. Like, do we even know that that was really Oliver Cromwell's head, or did he just say it was Oliver Cromwell's <laughs> head? Because, again... Mm. Well, there, have, there were questions throughout the history of the head being in various possessions, whether or not it was Oliver Cromwell's head. Right. By the 18th century, it had become a curiosity and an attraction, um, and, you know, originally it was meant to scare people into not killing royal people. Right. Um, but it had lost a lot of its sinister message. Sure. The, the head was really thought of more as just a, a curiosity. It was in the possession at this point in the uh, 18th century of, quote, a failed comic actor and drunkard named Samuel Russell. That's my new Twitter bio. Russell was rumored to be a relative of Cromwell's, which is, I guess, genealogically plausible. The Cromwell's intermarried with Russell's in uh, in several different alliances. Name was Russell. About this point, another Twitter handle for you. It was spotted by prominent goldsmith clockmaker and toyman James Cox, who was convinced by all circumstances that it was, in fact, Oliver Cromwell's head. Okay. So he offered uh, 100 pounds, which is about 5,600 pounds in today's money. But even though Russell was kind of a a poor man, he refused to part with the head. He said it was so dear to him. It is sentimental, you know. Absolutely. Value. Totally understand. It's the head of a dead ancestor. What are you going to do? Plus, it's an antique at that point. Yeah, so you would think that he would have taken good care of it, but he really didn't. He would just get, like, really liquored up and invite his friends over, and then they'd they just pass it around. And Like, whoever had the head was the one that could talk? Yeah. Like one of those things? M- maybe something like that, Like a yeah. campfire game? Yeah, it's very possible. But what happened in the process was irreparable erosion to the features of the head. Yeah. Well, is it leathery at this point? Point, I would imagine yeah. it's kind of leathery. Yeah, I would think at this point. Yeah. But your fingers, they have that oil. It's not good for the the leathery skin no. of Oliver Cromwell's decomposed head. At this point, Russell said... Russell. That- 
he wanted to uh, donate it to Sydney Sussex College. He offered the head up to the master of the college, and they said no. Yeah, no, you've put your dirty hands all over it, Russell. (laughs) We don't even believe that this is Oliver Cromwell anymore because it's just a leathery ball with some weird hair sticking out of it. Is that why they didn't want it? I'd be concerned about the condition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But let's not forget about prominent goldsmith clockmaker and toyman James Cox. He had not given up on trying to get Cromwell's head. All right. So Russell, he wasn't able to give it to a college. They didn't want it. So Russell had it. So what Cox did was start loaning him small amounts of money. And then over time, it added up to 100 pounds and Russell couldn't pay it. So he said, I'll take the head. (laughs) Ha ha, smart. He looked at it as a, quote, retail investment. At the time, Cox had his own museum of curiosities. Apparently, everybody had one back then. Sure. But by the time that he actually had the head in his physical possession, he no longer had the museum or, or a place to display it. So he sold the head in 1799 for about 230 pounds or 7,400 pounds in today's money to three brothers whose last name was Hughes. They, <gasps> they wanted to start their own display on Bond Street. And they got the head with the idea of this will be our chief display. This will be our big draw, Oliver Cromwell's head. Mm-hmm. They also bought a bunch of posters and uh, memorabilia. It started making like 80s teen angst movies. No. That that was that's John Hughes. Yeah. No, these not the Brat Pack. These are more like the Rotting Head Pack. Yeah. Cool. Okay. That is less fun. Regardless, the exhibition was a failure because the entrance fee was too high. They were charging. They wanted what would be in today's money five pounds to get in to see the head. Wow. Despite the failure of the Brat Pack Museum, one of the Hughes daughters continued showing the head to anybody who wanted to see it. Yeah, well, that's another reason why your museum won't work. Like, if you're like, (laughs) I'm going to charge you $5 to come and see this, and then someone's like, can I see it? And you're like, oh, yeah, here, take a look. So they tried to sell their museum or, or exhibition, and they couldn't. So it forced the daughter to sell the head privately. And in 1815, it was sold to Josiah Henry Wilkinson. And in his family... It would remain until the late 1950s. Oh, wow. Now, as you touched upon earlier, there were claims that the head was not really that of Oliver Cromwell. But after a full examination in 1911 by the eugenicist Carl Pearson and the anthropologist Jeffrey Morant, they issued a 109-page report that concluded that there was a, quote, moral certainty that the head was that of Oliver Cromwell. Oh, wow. At this point, the guy who had it, his name was Horace Wilkinson. And we're in the 1950s now? 1957, he died, and he left it to his son, who was also called Horace. Horace Wilkinson II wished to organize a proper burial for the head, rather than, you know, put it on a pike on top of Westminster or exhibit it in a seedy hotel. Or pass it around a campfire. So he contacted Sydney Sussex College. If you remember, it was the one that Russell couldn't get them to, to take the head back in the uh, late 1700s. They were like, no, thank you. But they, they welcomed the burial. They said, this is great. So the head was interred on the 25th of March, 1960, in a secret location near the anti-chapel. It's in an oak box in which the Wilkinson family had kept the head since 1815. The box was placed inside an airtight container. Like, I'm thinking like one of those Tupperware lettuce uh, crispers. Sure. 
and buried with only a few witnesses, including family and representatives of the college. The secret burial was not announced until October 1962, and the site, nobody knows for sure where it is. And it's because they're concerned that someone will try to snag it. Someone will dig it up, some, like, you know, toy maker. It's my turn to talk. (laughs) I need that head. So there's the uh, rather interesting and lengthy journey of Oliver Cromwell's head. I love it. And now, that thing in the middle. A number of years ago, there was a prisoner whose name was Stephen J. Russell. Stephen managed to escape jail by simply walking out pretending to be a prison guard. Days later, he was captured. But Russell paid his bail by pretending to be the judge. Well, he was caught again a few days later. But this time, Russell walked out of prison by pretending to be a doctor. When he was captured again, Russell then broke out of prison by pretending he was dead. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, 
it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So if Jethro wants someone to unexpectedly yell penis at his funeral, we wonder what Cat wants to hear. Yeah, I, I don't think I can say that. This is The Box of Oddities. A few episodes ago, I was talking about uh, the bodies that are left on Mount Everest, mountain climbers that yeah. didn't make it. And, and there were hundreds of them up there. And how there have been mountain climbers who have survived after being in distress, in stressful situations. And they refer to there being a third man in the party that was not really there, that somebody would show up and help them get to safety and then disappear. And this is called, and we had, we talked about this briefly, uh, third man factor. Mm -hmm. And it often happens when people are under great amounts of stress and survival is questioned and some Thing, someone, some presence shows up and, and, and helps them out. But it's also used in therapy. We talked about this, about creating your own third man. And one of the freaks wrote to us, Vico says, oh, hey, I use the third man factor in therapy for CPTSD. I use Olivia Benson when thinking about or working through stuff that I went through. It's amazing. I would trust her. She's from uh, which law and order is she from? SVU. SVU. Vico says, it helps a lot to reprocess what happened by someone trusted and capable of helping being there. That's really interesting. I never really thought about that, but I can see where that would be extremely beneficial. Wow. I love that. And I need to go back to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do too. If only to meet my third man. <laughs> so I'm sitting here all at Twitter. What do you have for me? Oh, well, I was asking our... Amazon Echo, I will not use the... The A word. The launch word. <laughs> <laughs> so as not to butt plug anyone. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite things is to ask her about this week in history. And 
I learned that in this week in history is when the Globe Theater burned down. It was June 29th, 1613. And that's where most of Shakespeare's plays debuted. And right before they cut off Oliver Cromwell's head. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> By about 40 years. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting parallel. Elizabethan Our times. time period. Mm, wow. Mm. So obviously theater has been going on and has changed for millennia. Uh, Western theater developed and expanded considerably under the Romans. And then in the 4th and 5th centuries, the seat of Roman power shifted to Constantinople and the Eastern Roman Empire uh, today, which is called the, the Byzantine Empire. Surviving evidence about the Byzantine theater is slight, and it shows that mime and pantomime uh, were very popular, that scenes from plays were played out, but theater wasn't the same. It wasn't going on in the way that it had been. But but people would go to a Byzantine theater and watch a guy imagine he's inside an invisible box? It happened mostly on streets and... Oh. Um, like I said, it changed a lot over the years. Uh, the Dark Ages were a really tough time for theater, as you can imagine. Most organized theatrical activities disappeared entirely in Western Europe. Uh, this is according to Brockett and Hildy's The History of Theater. It does seem that small nomadic bands traveled around Europe throughout the period, performing where they could find audiences. And there's not evidence that they produced anything but crude scenes. So again... Well, what do you mean by crude? So it, not like full theatrical plays, but scenes from plays. Okay, so not like Lemon Party. No, no, not not like that. Okay. It wasn't... Two girls, one cop. No. Right. Okay. Not that kind of crude. More just uh, simple, basic, mm -hmm. different than what you're thinking of, which is... Weird. Um, these performers were denounced by the church during the Dark Ages. Uh, they were viewed as dangerous and pagan and shunned. Theater was just not to be done uh, during the Dark Ages, according to the church. Except some churches in Europe began staging dramatized versions of particular biblical events on specific days of the year. Okay, so that was okay. That was okay. Right. Plays were... Uh, outside of the church, staged on a wagon, and mm. mostly it was like it was like a stage that was on wheels, and they would have to kind of unfold the sides of the okay. wagon, yeah, sure. and that was their stage, mm -hmm. and then they'd fold everything back up and tootle on away. Kind of like a funnel cake stand. Kind of like that, yes. I think it was one to be able to find an audience mm -hmm. and uh, perform in different locations, but also because it wasn't. It was kind of frowned upon. So they <laughs> they want to just be like, oh, no, no, just funnel cakes here. Yeah. This is, uh, Get your funnel cakes. Yeah. <clears throat> hot and fresh. So morality plays did emerge as a distinct dramatic form around 1400 and flourished until the 1500s. During this time, Commedia dell'arte troops also performed improvisational playlets, let's call them, across Europe. And that originated in Italy in the 1560s. It was like an actor-centered theater, kind of like a one-man show. Mm -hmm. um, again, kind of a pantomime, mime, these kinds of singular artist 
plays took place. Uh, Dramatic readings, maybe, yes, that sort exactly. of thing. Yeah. Uh, plays didn't originate from written drama, but from scenarios called lazi, which were loose frameworks that provided the situations, the obstacles and outcomes around which actors would improvise. It was kind of like the sitcoms of the day, hmm. like situational events that they had to kind of deal with. and wah, so, wah. Like, like, like Second City. Yeah. Like Second City Theater. Lots of improv, for sure. So, Renaissance Theater. What, generally, when someone says theater, it's what I think of as theater. And uh, it's probably because I am uh, not very well educated. Now, (laughs) Renaissance Theater derived from several medieval theater traditions, such as the mystery plays that formed as part of religious festivals in England and other parts of Europe during the Middle Ages. So since before the reign of Elizabeth I, companies of players were attached to households of leading aristocrats, and they were performed seasonally in various locations. So the play cast, the the theater actors kind of belonged to royal houses okay. or or the the fancy pants houses. Mm-hmm. So these became the foundation for the professional players that performed on the Elizabethan stage. The tours of these players gradually replaced the performances of the morality and mystery plays by local players. And in 1572, law eliminated the remaining companies lacking formal patronage by labeling them as vagabonds. So the Common Council of London in 1574 started licensing theatrical pieces performed in in yards within city limits. The theater companies maintained the pretense that any public performances were rehearsals for the royal patrons. It was a loophole. It was kind of, yeah. But really, that's where they made their money, was outside doing plays for the regular people. Hmm. To escape the restriction, actor James Burbage built his own theater on land that he leased outside of city limits. The theater, which it was called, not super creative, by the way, had been built by Richard Burbage's father, James Burbage, in Shoreditch in 1576, and it was called The Theater. The Burbages originally had a 21-year lease, but the building itself was owned outright. But when the lease had expired on the land, he claimed that the building was now his. So on December 28, 1598, while the landlord was celebrating Christmas in his country home, a carpenter and the Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare's play company, and their friends dismantled the theater beam by beam and moved it across the river wow. <laughs> to Broadwell. So they were like, no, this building is not yours. The land may be, yes, the lease expired, but that building's not yours. We're taking it. So they tootled their asses over to Bridewell and built the Globe. Not right away. They waited until spring. But like other theaters in its time, the Globe was a round wooden structure with a stage at one end and covered balconies for the gentry. Galleries could seat about 1,000 people with room for another 2,000 groundlings. And they would stand, you know, on the ground in front of the stage. I've seen depictions of the Globe Theater. I'm sure everybody has. And... Buildings in in those days, the roofs roofs were thatched. Correct. And so when I look at it, it just looks like a multi-story uh, barn. 
It, it sure does. Um, to me, it looks like a torch waiting to happen. <laughs> there is some debate on when exactly the globe was completed. But the first performance for which a firm record remains was Every Man Out of His Humor. That's the first show that we know for absolutely performed at the globe. No kidding. So competition between the rival theaters was fierce. Every theater wanted to attract as many people as they could to get, you know, for each performance. So staging theater productions got more elaborate, costumes became more important, and so did the props. And of course, there weren't really health and safety regulations. There were no safety inspections for sure. Um, And on June 29th, 1613, the Globe Theater was in a performance of Henry VIII, and they set off a theatrical cannon. Uh-oh. So it misfired, and it ignited the wooden beams and thatching. So because they didn't have fire extinguishers or fire trucks... Or water, in many cases. <laughs> they did have water. Uh, that's what they used. Buckets filled with water that they ran to the river and got. And you can't... It's a thatched roof. Sure. It's, you're not going to... It's not going to work. Plus, you're spreading dysentery. So, so uh, that didn't work out. And again, that is the day that the Globe Theater went up in flames. According to one of the few surviving documents of that event, no one was hurt except for a man whose burning britches were put out with a bottle of ale. <laughs> I've been at a couple of parties like that, usually right after somebody tries to light a fart. (laughs) This is according to the life and letters of Sir Henry Wotton. The theater was rebuilt the following year, but uh, not long later, in 1642, the Globe was closed down for good by the Puritans. Apparently, theater, once again, not cool to, uh, to be performing in front of the public. It was just... Well, the devil trods the boards with the actors. That's right. That's right. Mm. So um, that is the fire of Shakespeare's globe. It did survive past the fire. However, it did not survive those buckled hats. Wow. If you had a time machine, have you ever thought about where one of the first places that you'd go would be? Yes. Where would where would that be? I think we've talked about this before. I would go see dinosaurs. Sure. I would I think the first place I would go would be to see a Shakespeare play at the Globe Theater in the late 1500s. Oh, really? And then maybe like Evil Knievel when he jumped over the fountain at um, Caesar's Palace. <laughs> okay. Right after that. That's very specific. Uh, no, I think I would I would Mesozoic era um, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I would want maybe something pyramidy. Sure. I would want um, to be in the basement of John Bonet Ramsey's house. Mm. Um, mm. Wait, can I not interfere? Do I get to interfere you or get, not? No, you get this to. Very inter- important. You get to interfere. This is not a Ray Bradbury short story. Oh, okay. No, you get to interfere. Oh yeah. Well, then yeah. that might. That's what. Whether you would or do. not I can interfere. Changes my answer completely. Okay. But either way, the first choice would be the Mesozoic era. (laughs) I got to see them dinosaurs. I'd be at the Globe Theater lighting my farts. (laughs) Quick reminder, you guys, our website, theboxofoddities.com, has everything Box of Oddities related from um, our our merch. Thank you so much to everyone who bought our Pride design last month. 
all the profits from the sale of that shirt will be going to the Trevor Project, and we will be matching that donation. We really appreciate that. And the shirt's still available if you want to if you want to pick it up, the Pride shirt, as well as our forthcoming um, fall and winter line of Box of Oddities activewear. Yeah, we're going to get some joggers. They're going to be sweet. Actually, a number of people have suggested boxer shorts of oddities. It's true. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Anyway, we'll see you next time, freaks. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Cromwell's body was, uh, Cromwell's body lay undisturbed. Cromwell, the body, Oliver If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.